A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is produced by Authentic Form and Function. We're a design and technology studio working in the real estate space. We help developers and architects innovate their work with unique brands, websites, and digital tools. Last year, we launched Amplify, a digital real estate marketing platform that combines high-touch custom design with out-of-the-box real estate marketing technology. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com Amplify. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else you should speak with, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. So it started with that. We kicked off with what's wrong with cities to sort of have like an overarching conversation, but mainly focusing on New York City. We did that at Pratt Institute. And then it started to grow from there. And for our own selfish interest, you know, the topic would tie with a project that we're working on. So we were working on something related to the fashion industry at the time. We did what's wrong with fashion. We did what's wrong with health because we were working on a healthcare-related project. So it would like follow our own project agenda, but at the same time, the conversations would always be public. On this episode, I'm speaking with Pinar Guvanch. Pinar is the partner of Sauer, an international award-winning architecture and design studio with the mission to address social and urban problems through sustainable, adaptive, and inclusive methodologies. In addition to managing the business operations, she also leads the strategic planning, research, and partnerships efforts of the studio. Prior to Sauer, Pinar co-founded various ventures where she helped set up company infrastructure and grow them through funding or incubation, achieving international recognition and awards. Pinar is part-time faculty at Parsons School of Design within the School of Design Strategies. She serves on the board of directors of Open Style Lab, a nonprofit organization initiated at MIT with the purpose of making style accessible to people of all abilities. She also created and teaches a strategic collaborations workshop series for Pratt Center for Community Development and the Made in NYC initiative. Pinar is a frequent public speaker and guest lecturer and hosts the What's Wrong With panels and podcasts by Sauer, a series of discussions with progress makers and experts to diagnose real problems, ideate solutions, and raise awareness to the general public. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump on in. Pinar, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Chris, for having me. So before we jump into the work that you're doing today, I'd love to tell the listeners about your background, you know, where you grew up, how you grew up, your family, and et cetera, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, um, I have a very diverse background, actually, which it's a slightly an exhausting story, but also very interesting. I was born in US, but then we moved to Turkey when I was five. Both my parents are Turkish. And I grew up in Turkey. And I come from a very academic family that are, you know, academics in hard sciences and engineering. So um, that was my entire worldview on things. And then I thought, okay, then I'm going to do a PhD in something clearly because that's the family tradition. So what should that be in? And I, I guess like anyone who grew up in a developing country could relate to this. If you are a good student, uh, you're expected to study like a field that is perceived difficult or it could definitely get you a job, which is in Turkey, it could be like engineering or 
being a doctor or a lawyer or something like that, like social sciences, not necessarily. But I also had a huge interest in uh, any like humanities or social sciences. So I was trying to find a balance on what I could study that could be both quantitative and qualitative. And I landed upon industrial engineering or in other terms, systems engineering, which not only you know focuses on processes and optimization of processes, but also requires a holistic understanding of how things operate, which you know, organizational structure and human behavior are a big part of. So I studied industrial engineering. And then because I still were contemplating on moving into a qualitative field, I decided to do a PhD, of course, in um, marketing. And I think the reason why I wanted to switch marketing it because it was such a like distant topic from engineering. I just wanted to understand how, you know, if something was manufactured or created in one end and if the customer is on the other hand, what is that middle ground? Like what is the center of the wheel that connects everything? And to me, I perceive that as marketing. So I applied for PhD programs in um, New York because I wanted to live in New York. Like it was clearly not a very educated decision. I was like, okay, so what are the best schools in New York? I can apply to Columbia, NYU, and I want to live there. And I want to switch to marketing because it's a cool subject to study. And I'm just going to do that. Which, by the way, when I was deciding on this, I was 20 years old. So definitely not the way you should be picking. And I actually wrote down that you wrote that you were basically just curious about everything and how you could make things better and how products worked and how products were developed. Did all of that kind of play into that decision-making process? Probably it did. I don't think it consciously did because I was very um, going by... Not the book, but like the family tradition, plus like what I was interested in at the moment. I mean, it's true, I've followed my curiosity always. So that probably helps, but I didn't think I was doing it consciously at that age, really. I got into Columbia Business School. Um, I was the youngest person in the program. The second youngest person was 26 years old. And for a reason, you know, like you shouldn't be deciding on what, you know, in depth research you're going to do right after your undergraduate degree. Like it was a very uneducated and raw decision. And I was actually miserable when I got in. I, thought I could study, you know, way more qualitative stuff. I could, you know, expose myself into different fields that I never had a chance to do so. But, you know, when you go into a very like one of the top business schools and with a quantitative background, that's where they expect you to perform in. So I was more on a quantitative track and I really weren't able to study things that I want to study. So I eventually quit. And I think I'm like the, we, I call myself the black sheep of the family, like the first person to ever quit a PhD program. <laughs> so what happened then? What, what did you do? You quit, but then this, obviously the story doesn't end there. What happened next? Yeah, I mean, well, I didn't know back then, but it was the best thing that actually ever happened to me. Because I guess if I had never tried, I would never know. But I saw that, you know, I really wanted to be more hands-on and apply rather than researching on the theory, especially because at such a young age, I had no idea what I wanted to dive into, like very specifically. So because there was no plan B, I was just applying to, you know, jobs here and there. And, you know, industrial engineers are known to go into consulting firms. So I was applying to consulting firms. And then my sister at the time was, of course, doing her PhD in uh, Southern Illinois University. And serendipitously, she goes to this like school event and meets the dean of the business school there. And the conversation about 
me like going to Colombia and then quitting, like that's that comes up. And then he's like, well, what's she doing now? She's like, I don't know, really. Like she's just applying for like jobs randomly. And he's like, well, she should at least do a master's. And she's like, well, I told her, but she really doesn't want to apply to any schools. So um, literally on the day that I was going to my second interview at like a consulting firm, I get a call from the dean of the business school at the time, uh, who is offering me a full scholarship to join, you know, a master's program there. And he was like, look, you grew up in Turkey. I'm sure you can learn more stuff about business, how to do business here. So you should just come here. And it sounded great. And living with my sister as adults, you know, also sounded great. So I just went there. So I did a master's in econ and finance, which, you know, you can also assume the, uh, my, they were living in St. Louis and we lived there for a year. Um, you can also understand the cultural shock. Yeah, I was going to say Southern Illinois in St. Louis, Missouri, or, or I guess St. Louis, Illinois, depending on where you are, that had to have been culture shock kind of on its own given that you grew up in Turkey, then moved to you know the big city of New York City, and now you're in St. Louis. What was that like for you? Um, pretty shocking. I mean, you know, I was born in California, Riverside. It is like you know, definitely suburbia. And um, I think we lived in Chicago suburbs when I was little too. But then I grew up in Turkey, which in more of like a suburban area again. So New York was actually like a bigger difference for me, but I always travel to or appreciated busy cities like New York. So like, and after living there for a while, going to St. Louis, I just like, I couldn't comprehend things. Like my sister was like, oh, you know, we live very close to the campus. And I'm like, oh, great, then I'll walk. And she's like, but there's no sidewalks. So like that transition to like being on your feet to like, you have to go everywhere with a car. I think it's the first time ever I saw like a Starbucks drive-through, which was shocking for me. And I refused, I actually refused to do it for the year I lived there. I always parked and got my coffee and got back in. What's interesting about this to me, and, and I'm just connecting the dots myself right now, but you know, kind of one of the themes of this podcast is really about human-centered design solutions, being thoughtful with design and technology and architecture and space. And what you just described is kind of the bullseye of that in my mind on a small level. Now, I don't want to spoil it too much and get too far ahead of ourselves, but you did eventually move back to New York City and you started doing some consulting work within development and the real estate space. So what was that transition like? Why did you choose to go back to NYC and why architecture, why development, why real estate? I think the decision on moving back to New York, it was definitely the energy. Like I really missed the energy. I think when you live in a city that is, you know, driven by cars and you go around with cars and you people live in isolation in big houses like that sort of strips away this human energy that is on the streets, which is what I really missed throughout the year that I lived in St. Louis, which, you know, it's a very lovely city, but uh, I couldn't, you know, wait to get back to New York City. So I was applying for jobs. And at this point, I had a master's in finance. So I thought it would be a good thing to sort of practice that because, you know, as you already know, like finance has its own language. And growing up in Turkey was totally foreign to me. I'm sure it's still foreign to many Americans also. And I only had a year of exposure and that was like more coursework. So I thought, you know, living in and practicing this could be a good option. So I applied to consulting positions that involve some sort of like a financial analyst or financial exposure opportunity. Um, and I guess New York City, the 
city being the place for real estate. It happened to be a consulting firm that also did a lot of consulting work for real estate developers. So that wasn't planned actually. And I think that was the first time that I was exposed to the real estate world in that sense. And that was pure serendipity. What did you feel like when you started to become engaged in the real estate space? What were the things that stuck out to you? <laughs> it's interesting. Like the first thing that came to my mind when you asked that was disappointment, actually, because, you know, I feel like when I initially went to New York, like first time ever, well, I've been many times, but in my, you know, living memory when I was like a, in college or something, when I went to New York, I was so inspired by the, city and the, how it was planned and the architecture and everything that was around it and like how they planned the streets and how you know having such lively streets created this sense of safety even though New York City is not necessarily the safest place on earth like all of those were so mind blowing to me and i that's i think one of the main reasons why i also maybe started liking architecture i mean i always liked you know the historic architecture if i if we traveled to rome like i would really admire that but in a modern city it's the city that sort of got me into liking buildings really but then when i got into the consulting space and we would do a lot of like financial packaging for real estate developers in the sense that you know we would seek out opportunities to save them money through federal state or local government incentives in the real estate development and i started to get exposed to zoning regulations and how those drove economic incentives and grants for the projects that were taking space in new york city and seeing that and diving into that, I recognized that most of the cool things or the things that I thought were cool and they were purely done for people and you know by sophisticated educated developers, I realized one of the main reasons they were all done were because there were some sort of economic incentives behind it. They either got tax abatements, they either got, you know, full waiver of taxes or some sort of like a grant package or a rebate that sort of incentivized them to create, let's say, a public plaza or affordable housing component or a park near the building. So like discovering that was actually a little bit disappointing. And it was, I guess, my first realization into how the real estate industry itself was so behind and lagging in, I guess, innovation and rethinking things. Well, let's put a pin in that because you also started working for the NY Functional Furniture. The first time you told me, you said it was the NYFU and I kind of scrambled and I had to like look up, <laughs> okay, was this like a joke? What's she talking about? But the the New York NY Functional Furniture, NYFU, um, what was that group all about? Tell us about that. So I was in consulting for about two years. It really was an eye-opening experience for me in many, many ways. Um, but I was also like curious about other things at that point. And my friend who comes from a family of like furniture manufacturer for, I guess, many years at this point, came to me with an idea about creating an e-commerce platform for functional furniture for urban dense cities. And the idea for the name is NYFU because not only will it be derived from New York functional furniture, but also we will have an FU attitude to all the other furniture brands that are either too expensive 
or you know are not expensive but have high shipping for a certain reason or that are cheap and all of, all of that. So we basically were trying to create affordable luxury in functional furniture. And by functional furniture, I mean like Ottomans turning into beds. So not only just you know sofa beds. And he was like, he's he studied industrial design, and he was like, I don't want to deal with numbers. I don't want to deal with people. Do you want to do it together? And you know, like I said, I come from an academic family. There's no like entrepreneurial coaching or spirit that I would I grew up in, and that was a very foreign thing to me. And I was scared about it. So I was like, let me see. Like I don't know. I can definitely help you out. So I started working on like at nights, and then the nights also turned into weekends, and then I just fully got consumed by it and. Then I was like, okay, I'm, I want to take the risk. Like, let's do it. So I left my consulting job and we started that. And I think that was my first exposure into the design world in one level. And, you know, as someone with my background, my role was more to set up the business operations, the supply chain, the logistics, uh, and all of that. So basically, enabling the design space and enabling for that to happen by taking care of everything else, I guess. that's That was my role. And I think that was a great way to execute everything I've learned. I think after that, I was like, nobody should do an MBA. They should just do a startup. So that was, that was a very educating experience. True. I've heard that from quite a few people. So what would you say, like looking back now, what, what's the biggest like lesson or life lesson that you learned from that process, kind of hopping into that? entrepreneurial grinder, basically, I mean, right? Because it became all consuming. Yeah. I mean, I think number one, I discovered that I loved being at a company where making was involved. Like I never liked, and I'm not judging anybody who enjoys this, but I never liked being just part of like transaction or being like in the uh, not in the production team, but sort of outside of it. Like only consulting was not interesting for me. I liked making things happen and sort of like seek out ways to make them better too. So being, you know, involved in the design and making process was so amazing for me and also, you know, being able to oversee the entire system and having contribution in all departments so to speak. Like that was also very very fulfilling. I think anybody who gets bored of like repetitive jobs or repeating, you know, one task at one department could Relate to this, like I think that was something that I couldn't come back from, like once being exposed to that. So I loved working in a lean team. I loved seeing the growth, the actual growth, and being able to track that. So I think that hype, no wonder so many entrepreneurs become serial entrepreneurs. Like you, it's sort of really hard to give up on that. Yeah, I, I I mean I agree. <laughs> um, <laughs> you you mentioned to me that that became successful. It eventually became successful as a business. A main vendor took yeah. over the company, and you had a you were presented with with a decision. Right, there was a crossroads between either working for said vendor, said larger company, or you know going a new way. And I don't want to spoil it, but I think listeners know where this is headed. You went with another team and started a, a new group. And tell us about that. Yeah, so exactly. Like I was either going to be like leading the US operations of a much larger company at that point, or I was joining two architects who were founding the New York office of an Istanbul setup studio. 
or I was either going to join them as their managing partner because both of them were architects and they were, um, you know, smart and wise enough to recognize that they didn't want to do everything about the business. And I think at that point, you know, as I said, there is no coming back from it. It was really hard for me to, even though it's a much secure position, like I don't want to. I mean, doing a startup and you know launching something and growing it is very, very difficult, right? Like, there's no need to mention that. But I think even then, it's still you want that. If especially you've you've gained a little bit more confidence, you've seen you've done something, and I know like a switch from a furniture company to an architecture and design studio is not necessarily very um, conventional. But I think it was also something. That could be a huge opportunity to do things a bit different at an architecture studio. So I said no to the acquiring a company and I joined a team, which uh, by then, I guess, you know, we also rebranded really quickly. I don't know if I should like go into that now, but which is, you know, the architecture studio now called Sour. Yeah. So this begins the story of what is today sour. As you mentioned, you went through a little bit of a rebranding actually recently, which is pretty cool to be able to to talk yes. about that on this show. Tell the listeners about the firm. What are you all about? Kind of what do you stand for? What is the work that you are pursuing? Yeah. So I mean, the two architects who uh, who were founding the company, Inanjara and Gonzalo Carbajo, they came from very established architecture firms. Inanj worked with Saha Hadid close to about ten years, and Gonzalo worked with SOM for many, many years. So I guess like when it was being set up, we just started, right? Like you don't, you have an idea of what you want to do, but you don't necessarily know yourself. Like you're rediscovering yourself when you're starting your own business, and. To me, it was just a full discovery of the field itself. And being someone who sees opportunities to improve things or do things differently, I think it was also sort of my training on seeing like, okay, how does this practice function uh, conventionally and how can we do things differently and maybe also help us grow faster uh, and gain exposure. And so I think that self-discovery Five years is a good period of time to really understand what you really want to do. And I think this year marks our fifth year and it felt timely for us to do our rebranding because for the past few years, we felt very passionate about addressing social and urban problems in our work. And I think that sort of came to a point that our name had to be more reflective of it. And um, we felt that we have to be very mission driven. And so the word sour is a play on the word social and urban, but it also reflects our attitude in terms of you know not shying away from challenges and stop sugarcoating. Mm, I love that. One of the things that you told me when we first spoke was actually, I think, an example of what you're referring to now. And it had to do with one of the main issues that you saw was zoning and zoning being too restrictive. And I think it's kind of a poetic to talk about that now today, a few months after the coronavirus pandemic has really kind of struck you know, globally. And I think one of your main points was it really is restrictive and it lags and inhibits others to be more responsive, to come up with better solutions to really what's going on in real time. And the example you gave me was restaurants moving into the streets during coronavirus, not being able to have people inside gathering and but okay, how can we quickly pivot? And you 
you really identified quickly that zoning is a problem in the space. And this is something, one of the things um, amongst many that you're trying to address with the work that you do. Yeah. And, you know, this is not only the real estate industry we see that policy lags, right? Typically, there are private forces to sort of push the boundaries. And if they become strong enough, then the policy sort of follows. Um, I think real estate lobby typically more pushes towards its own profit. Whereas I think we see, you know, maybe the field of technology or technology industry is moving so fast that policy sort of like, Follows, but at the same time, can't even deal with what's going on until like maybe it's too late. So, I think you know the issue with zoning is that clearly it inhibits a responsive city, right? And it also causes us to sort of lose the diversity in building and design, really, because it gives a certain guidelines on how to maximize floor area for a certain reason. I mean, they want to create a neighborhood feel. They want to inhibit things like. Obviously, it's done for a good reason, but the fact that it can't adapt quickly or be responsive starts restricting things. And it's really hard to get around it if you are just stuck on bringing your design in the form of a building. I think that became sort of an, I mean, it's the entire system. I don't want to blame architects necessarily, nor developers. Like developers rely on mortgages and construction loans from the banks, who clearly are only about profit, and then or their investors, who are also about profit. So they don't want to take any risks. And architects are becoming too commercially friendly because they want to get jobs because it's a tough economy, it's very competitive, and also you want to do a building in New York, right? Like what's cooler than that? But then we're seeing like these standardized things that keep going up in our guideline. And especially in like rapid growing neighborhoods like Brooklyn. And like I didn't witness the full growth of Manhattan. That happens before me, but I witnessed some of Brooklyn and so much of it is just ugly buildings. And um, no like deep thought into it. You can see clearly that the only thing that is driving it is maximizing floor area, which is I mean, it's fine, but at the same time, what's happening then for, you know, on the environmental aspect of things? What's happening in regards to human well being? What's happening to the city's well being in general if we keep like constructing these buildings without thinking anything but the coding and the building, uh, the zoning and the building code? So I think. One of the reasons why we do such diverse work of different typologies and scale is to also show and emphasize that how you address problems shouldn't be just by focusing on the building. It can start somewhere else as a small scale prototype, and then you can grow it from there and see how it can be applied in your built environment. I'm glad that you mentioned that because a lot of what you're hitting on right now really taps into your what's wrong with series. And I don't want to go too far down the line here without mentioning that because I think this started back in 2017. It's called What's Wrong With? And it started out as something other than what it is today. I guess it's evolved over the years. So let's pause there for a second. And just can you explain to the listeners what the What's Wrong With series is all about? <laughs> what is what's wrong with? Yeah. So, I mean, we're we're very, you know, we have a big mission, right? And clearly that could only be achieved by heavy research and a lot of collaboration, multidisciplinary collaboration. So 
I mean, we were already a very research driven studio in that sense. And what's wrong with was like one of the first questions that we would ask about things to sort of even for something that looks like it has no problems, we would just ask that just to sort of push us to think. And I think one day we were just kind of like, you know, we're having all these amazing conversations with progress makers to sort of ideate. We're doing all these interviews, we're doing all this research, but more and more we felt like there is no solution to any problem without educating the end user. I mean, if you think about it, nothing about the buildings we walk through. I mean, we see the design, we see the shell of it, but we don't know the process. We don't understand what goes into it. We don't understand what are the restrictions of creating a space that works well for all. We just don't know. We're not educated about our space. When we're renting a home or when we're buying a home, we look at maybe the ceiling height. Is that nice? Is it, does it have a balcony? Does it get sunlight? That's pretty much it. We don't question the materiality that goes into it. We don't ask about you know what happened during construction. Like was it fair labor? Like all of that. We have zero connection to the spaces that we're in, and that was kind of like well, if there is no demand or any push from the end user to better our built environments, we're never going to reach a solution ever. If we just you know on one side only the architects or you know a few progress makers trying to make things better that's not going to work so this had to be a public conversation rather than our own internal research so that led us to open a part of our process to public and it came in the form of what's wrong with the panel series because we often host these like ideation discussion sessions with different progress makers in the field generally from diverse disciplines relating to fields so that we can get different perspectives. And we turned them into like a panel discussion format, typically at universities, so that we could also educate the you know, next generation designers and architects. So it started with that, we kicked off with what's wrong with cities to sort of have like an overarching conversation, but mainly focusing on New York City. We did that at Pratt Institute and then it started to grow from there. And then for our own selfish interest, you know, the topic would tie with a project that we're working on. So we were working on something related to the fashion industry at the time. We did what's wrong with fashion. We did what's wrong with health because we were working on a healthcare related projects. So it would like follow our own project agenda, but at the same time, the conversations would always be public. And towards end of, I would say 2019, before COVID, but it really worked well during COVID too. We also said, I mean, you know, we're no events company, but we were able to pull that off. And it's, it's actually pretty successful and people are really happy with it. We witnessed people like starting conversations and people from different fields starting talking about things that they never talked about before. So that was really, really cool to see. So we were like, okay, what well, part of our research can we open up, you know, to people? And we were like, well, we do a lot of expert interviews. Maybe those should be podcast series. I mean, we were no events company, we're doing panels. I mean, we're no like interviewers, professional like journalists or such, but you know, we can interview people for public. So we also launched it was wrong with the podcast towards the end of 2019 and apparently was the best thing we could have done given that what happened this year, but yeah, so I think it's a great way for us to, you know, do diagnostic sessions with people who are tackling some of 
underlying issues of things and constantly try to reframe the problems that we see around the world. And while doing so, we ideate or discuss collaborative ways that could enable a sustainably better future. And we have a diverse audience listen to it. So I, I don't think there is, you know, I think that was by far the best decision we ever made for ourselves to. Let's definitely plug that podcast. So it's it's the What's Wrong With the podcast. And you can find it on any of the major outlets. I pulled it up on the Simplecast page. We can do we can share a link or two in the show notes to make sure that listeners can pop over that podcast too and, and take a listen. But definitely some really really cool conversations happening there. And I actually think to kind of riff off of that, one of your main quotes to me that I, I made sure to, to mark on my notes um, early on was, it all starts with humans. And I think that that ties to what you've spoken to thus far. It ties back to the podcast series and the panel series. And it kind of connects the dots to current times here with COVID and some of the, uh, I think you call them urgent designs that came out of post-coronavirus, as, as people were scrambling, as companies were scrambling. It all starts with humans, though. What did you see coming out of that you know, first month, two-month, three-month span early in 2020? Uh, I think the first things that we started to read once you know, the conversation of COVID, I guess, was started to take in seriously, I guess, because it was a conversation since 2019. Only we... Uh, discover that it was a problem in March 2020. And starting to see these rush designs that were pushed out and published in like established, you know, big design magazines and outlets, it was very painful to witness. I mean, I think, you know, the PR architecture world that or like design world that just tries to generate content and people are, you know, scared about a virus and it's the perfect time to publish about something. But seeing all these like rush designs that came out with no in-depth thought or research and or the long-term implications of anything that they were proposing, it was very disappointing to see. I mean, I understand as a business, like for example, as a building owner or like operator, you might have to come up with some urgent solutions to put out the fire. But publishing that as if it's the best innovation of 2020, that was really painful to witness. And we really like just saw that entire period as an opportunity more so to just rethink and sort of like go back to the drawing board, so to speak, and think about spaces and really like think about the spaces that were impacted the most. So starting with retail and depending on the retail we're talking about, it's their, you know, all their issues or the needs that uh, have to take place is different. Or if it's office, and given that going to office changed about homes. Uh, so we basically went back to all these locations of our lives and see what had to change in order to create spaces that are more responsive to things like a public health crisis, right? I think we saw that our built environment failed us. I mean, we knew in terms of like climate change and environmentally they're already failing us clearly you know climate change does exist if anybody still doubts that but in terms of our health and well-being i think that's sort of i don't know if it was perceived as a luxury topic like it was not necessarily number one priority i mean it's very interesting like we were having this conversation once one time on our podcast 
um, with an environmental psychologist who was saying architectural psychology was a popular term in 1970s. And not anymore, like not really, you know, like we're not, we're, I mean, we're talking about well being, human well being in spaces, but it's more like commercial. We're not going in depth with it because probably budgets don't allow. But it also like came to a point where I don't think anyone thought, especially in like a city like New York City, like real estate would fail you. You know, like you would not have foot traffic in Manhattan. Like so that's something people did not definitely did not think of before. I mean, they saw 9-11 and you know, maybe a few weeks later it was business as usual. So I think it really also was the first pause for many industries to think and be open to collaboration and research. And I think we saw that as an opportunity to reach out to diverse disciplines and people to do in-depth research instead of trying to rush out a design out there um, that would be irrelevant in the next few months or would have you know, worse effects on mental health for people. Hey listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our firm, Authentic Form and Function. I wanted to let you know about an internal research project we recently completed, where we analyzed the digital strategy of over 75 commercial real estate projects across multiple asset and project classes. We distilled this research into an ebook called The Real Estate Website Blueprint, which you can download for free on our website at authenticff.com blueprint. In it, we provide several strategies and tactics you can use on your next project to better position in the market, increase project awareness, and accelerate leasing. To download the ebook, be sure to visit authenticff.com slash blueprint. Yeah, this, this really gets into some of the work you're doing right now with NC State and some collaborators on the topic of masks and antimicrobial research. When I first heard this, to be honest, I was sort of scratching my head about how it all was connected. But I know that you're a small team and you're a nimble team. So you're able to sort of harness solutions from different groups, different thought leadership, and you can really address bigger issues with a smaller team, if that makes sense. And and that really became clear after you explained this one example to me. So I would love it if you could dive in a little bit, talk about that work and I want to hear about connecting the dots between, you know, it's not just a building or it's not just this architectural design. It really starts with people. And I thought you did a really great job expressing that to me. Well, I mean, as you said, we are a small team with a big mission, right? And that automatically calls for collaboration of many diverse disciplines and backgrounds. And the fact that, you know, we don't shy away from challenges, that also helps, obviously. And we are very open to, I think being a mission driven studio allows that instead of obsessing on the typology that you're going to create as an outcome, you sort of focus on solving the problem. I mean, and usually you can't solve the problem, but you can make progress uh, within a, a field or a problem or spark conversation or spark another innovation that may solve the problem. So when we started to look into all these spaces, I guess, during COVID, not post COVID. We also were quickly realizing it has to be conversation also has to be around materiality. It's not just about the space, right? So a lot of the cost effective and quick solutions are about, you know, physical distancing, but clearly 
or like wearing masks, but there's a lot of question marks around the materiality around us and how that sort of expedites the spread of a virus. So we reached out to North Carolina State University that has a very robust antiviral materials lab and started to work with them and ideate with them in terms of what can we apply to our built environment and how. And obviously that's a very big question. And we were looking at you know starting points, like should it be hospitals? Probably it should be hospitals or should it just be like urgent care? or emergency room, or we don't even do an emergency room. It's like a one giant tent outside of a hospital. So there's like less exposure. But then what's going on in other like heavy foot traffic spaces like airports or commercial office buildings, shopping malls, senior housing facilities. So we started to interview all these building operators or owners or developers in various typologies and see what they were doing. And I think like the most advanced high tech thing I've heard was just one building was in Netherlands was trying to go all hands free. But other than that, you know, and also it's like a good accessibility move too. So I'm not necessarily against it. That's actually not that bad of a push for a developer. But it was the all the other things we were hearing was just like very patchwork and um responding to the symptom rather than curing the problem or addressing the real issue. And then as we started to dig deeper into it, we started to recognize, okay, like we can do everything, all the changes in a layout, all the materiality changes in a space, but what happens if a user doesn't wear their mask? Or what happens if a user wears their mask incorrectly so they actually touch their mask? while they're taking it off and so that you know if there's any contamination that's on their hand and then you know they touch an elevator button or something and then that also contributes to threat so we like any solution that anything that we were ideating was always tying down to at the bottom core to the user behavior right so then we realized okay, then our starting point has to be at a place which is closest to the person. So what are the reason? And we know masks are one of the most effective tools that is stopping spread of a virus. So what are the failures of the current masks out there? Why do people don't want to wear masks? What is inhibiting them or discouraging them or demotivating them to wear a mask? If they can't wear a mask, for accessibility reasons, why can't they wear a mask? So we started to ask all those questions and which then turned into how might we create a mask where anybody can wear and anywhere. And that would also be antimicrobial and allowing for you know CO2 emission. And also it would be moisture wicking so that you can wear a sheer mask where people can see your mouth and you can have a conversation with someone without it fogging up. And when we realized how can we achieve all these lists, then we started to reach out to even more technical consultants and collaborators based both in New York and in London to create a consortium to work on that. And we're pursuing a grant that is based in UK for the project as well. So it's not a rush design, but it's a very well thought through design, which is not out there yet, but we're working on it and I can talk about that. 
Yeah, no, that that it's interesting because it it really does connect the dots here between the user, the experience that the user has in the building and the building itself. Whereas you could approach a project and think of it as a given that people are going to be wearing masks, maybe there's dividers in place and so on and so forth. You know, a lot of these things that we're seeing now and it seems like your take is, well, well, hang on a second. Let's take a step back and actually focus on the mask itself. It's not just about the mask, but let's start with with the mask in the person and think about how that entire experience walking into a building can be can be better and a little bit more seamless than it is today. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And I think you know, starting with product design, we often see this in other projects too. It gives a great opportunity for almost I want to say small scale prototyping and you know there are many other firms who carry concepts across different typologies and we really understand why because it's the best way for you to like test an idea in different scales and also explore its functions like if you were to incorporate such a novel material that is developed at a university and by also incorporating the technology of a few other companies then like once you have a working prototype on a human body, then you can start questioning, okay, how can this look at in a larger scale or how can it work in a larger scale? What would this mean as a, you know, maybe a device or a piece in the room or maybe in the surface of a building? So it, it starts a bigger conversation, but you have to start somewhere. And typically it has to start somewhere, not typically, but it should start somewhere where you know, it's closest to human. Mm. You mentioned another project that your studio is currently working on that I that I want to touch on because it again is very user centric, very human first, and it has to do with mothers <laughs> and the new <laughs> and the new sort of work from home norm, right? This new reality that a lot of families are facing. Tell us about that project and and what it's all about. Yeah. Um, well, clearly, you know. Again, looking into all the like rush design decisions out there, we started to read a lot about, you know, what is the new office like and, you know, what does the new six feet office looks like and how are we going back to the cubicle life and all of that? Like all these like demotivating, why should I even go back to an office type of like articles that we would read? And, you know, clearly we have to rethink offices and if there's a need of headquarters, how can we decentralize offices and actually create more local hubs and seeing, you know, offices or co-working spaces more of a co-ideation or strategy centers, like that is yes, a valid conversation. But I think the flip side of the conversation is that if we're at offices less and working from home more, what does this mean for the homes? And especially for homes that have households that need to juggle various type of schedules or needs of different age groups, right? So we quickly decided to, okay, as we were also doing research on offices, we have to look into what the new work from home looks like. And we started to do a lot of desk research and initially, it was just going to be like, let's rethink work from home. But it was clear that we had to sort of focus on the work from home experience for moms because they were the ones that were hit hardest, regardless if they were, you know, single moms or with partners or with like a nanny care or not. If moms were not working from home before, even if they did, like, I think 
many of them never had to sort of blur the boundaries of their work self and their mom self. They would either work if they're already working from home. We did a big survey and we we saw most of the moms that worked from home would actually work from home if the schools are if the children are at school or if they're out or if they do not work from home, they never did. Or if they would, it's after when they go to bed. So they never had to find a way to work together with their children in order to create a space they could work. They just found a way to work when they weren't around and then schools shut down, right? So their world suddenly was like upside down and everything collapsed and it was full chaos. And, you know, it was really interesting to see all these different responses on a survey, whereas there's at the same time a huge commonality on the pain points. And, but we really wanted to be able to observe what was going on in a day to day and why they were saying it's impossible to work or why they were saying I'm not being a good mom, but I'm not being a good employee either. So where did that imbalance come from? So we wanted to sort of have eyes on the house. So we decided to do a diary study with Openbox, which is also another amazing firm that you should all check out. And we worked with seven moms throughout a week and observe their day to days by giving them also daily tasks they would work on with their children. And I think the emphasis here is working with them because similar to all the urgent rush designs that were going out there, like initial times of, I guess, COVID, we also saw a lot of articles that were kind of like, you know, how to run away from your child and work for like 10 minutes or like how to you know, carve out space for yourself despite everything going on at home. So nothing really collaborative, very top down and very us versus them. Very much so. I I remember seeing so many articles on LinkedIn where, you know, it was one end of the spectrum and a lot of them were very much how to escape your kids or get them in another room for an hour so you can do your thing. And yeah, 100%, I, I agree. Like even though using the word escape, like it's a bit too <laughs> aggressive. No, it's, they're your own own children. So I mean, before we started the diary studies, we also did a lot of expert interviews um, with family therapists, uh, children psychologists, children educators, and they were all agreeing. You know, it has to be collaborative. It won't work. Like if you try to decide on their behalf, it's not going to work. They would only act out more, uh, which because they don't understand. But they also emphasized, you know, it also has to be biologically appropriate. So children above the ages, like three or four, would be able to collaborate more clearly. It's hard to negotiate with an infant or a young toddler. So we selected families that had either one or multiple children that are above four years old and see how the exercises we gave them would work. And we saw so many things that tied to in the end. And I don't want to give out too much because we're going to publish some of the research that we did. And I would love everyone to read it in more detail. But many of the issues stemmed of you know the constant chaos at home was due to something related to communication. So it was either assuming something about one another. It was either communicating something really harshly where there was no need for it. It was either not communicating something and it's clearly, you know, similar to how we saw everything else about COVID, there were a lot of rush 
decisions or you know fix quick fixes to be able to just get by that Zoom call or be able to join like another two hour meeting. But all moms already knew that this was not sustainable and they were not happy with it, which is also why they were very willing and open to do this exercise because they wanted to find a way to be collaborative with their children. No mom wants to ignore their children or lock them out when they're doing their work. So when we discover that many of the issues stemmed from something related to communication with their children, we already knew going in that it wasn't going to be about like, oh, to redesign your desk so that it's more work friendly. It was going to be something about the stakeholders of the household. But I think it was interesting to see that everything, every design intervention that we are going to do is going to be related to communication and I guess reminders of healthy communication. Yeah. When can we look out for that? Uh, or actually, what would you call that? An intervention toolkit? Or how are you coining that deliverable, so to speak, of that work? I think an intervention toolkit is a great <laughs> way to put it. I think that's like some temporary titles that we're using. <laughs> but also, I think we have to emphasize that it has a big collaboration aspect to it because to do this study, we worked with Hey Mama which is a nationwide organization that has working moms as their members. And this would be something that would be used by the community itself. So there's a big community collaboration aspect to it as well. So it's a collaborative toolkit, we can say. And we should start publishing stuff around it towards, I guess, end of October. Okay, perfect. So that'll be perfect timing for the listeners to keep an eye out for more information there. Pinar, thank you so much for your time today. I, I want to just kind of get to a couple more things before we wrap up. And the first thing is more of a forward-looking question for you. As you are looking ahead with the work that you're doing and what you're seeing out in the world, be it COVID or family or design, what do you see in the next, let's say, one to two years with everything going on? I think, you know, seeing sort of now the interest of everyone else really to also want to rethink things. I think it's a great space. I hope we don't lose that. You know, I don't want us to like go back to our our mindset that there was no COVID at the time and, you know, we were functioning in a total different world and now it feels like a total different space. So I think we at least take some of that silver lining and sort of continue to rethink things collectively. We will as a studio will continue to push uh, our research and I guess sort of continue to pitch. In that sense, we function, I would say, a little bit more like a tech incubator than a traditional architecture firm where we create concepts, self-commission them and sort of present to stakeholders that we think might be interested. We will continue to do that more so in terms of I guess all spaces that were hit hard uh, with COVID and sort of pitch ideas to, I guess, developers or companies that could make some difference by setting up some example spaces. So we would really hope and to be able to implement some of the research and prototyping that we've done or will continue to be doing post-COVID, if whenever we reach the post-COVID phase. So I think that's something... Um, I guess on a studio level, we will continue to implement. And I think that could present some cool opportunities to document our research, 
you know, with what's wrong with, we saw great value in sharing our research with people. And now we're also thinking of ways of different types of documentation of our research. So we will get creative in that. So just stay tuned and continue to follow us. Um, We might have some exciting news on that. I guess on a personal level, I'm a mom of a two-year-old. And I think seeing a human being growing firsthand and being like the number one witness of their growth and see how pure they are and they grow and how they perceive things and they're like sponges and they just like soak up everything and they have this genuine, honest, like straightforward, clear cut perception of things that sort of puzzles you. Like you're like, why didn't I think of that before? Oh, that was so simple to understand. She already saw that. You know, I think there's being around children is a way to really sort of connect you with what is really important. And also seeing them grow from these like, you know, innocent beings and coming into a world that is already filled with a lot of problems, it kind of holds you accountable to at least try to present them a world that is trying to do better. So I think in that sense, you know, us being a mission-driven studio and me being a mom is really in sync in that sense. Like if anything, years from now, if she asks me, like, did you try to change this? Like, I want to be able to say yes. I think that's the the bottom line of many things. And that is really all I can think of. You know, it affects my business decisions. It affects how I look at world in general, which is, you know, also sort of something that I would want to highlight for any working mom not to separate their mom cells from their business cells because I think it makes you a better business person and really try to merge the sort of studio mission alongside with my mission to try to present a better world for my child. Yeah. Well, clearly we should be paying attention to you and making sure that we keep a pulse on Sour. There's no doubt about that. But my last question to you is actually one that I I love so much because it kind of allows us to jump into your brain a little bit and pull out a couple of good nuggets before we sign off. And that really is, who do you think that we should be paying attention to? Who else is out there doing great work, inspiring work? Does anyone come to mind for you? Oh my God, so many. Okay, I'm going to make this succinct. I want to highlight you know, some uh, firms or organizations that do amazing work around urban matters and some that do amazing work around social matters as it also ties to our mission. I would say in uh, urban matters, I would definitely follow Pau, Vishan uh, Chakrabarti's firm, as well as Snowetta, two architecture and design firms that we really, really admire. And in terms of social uh, subjects, I really am a huge fan of all the work that Mass Design Group does, which is also an architectural nonprofit group. And Open Style Lab, which is actually an organization that is very near and dear to me because I serve on the board of directors. It is a nonprofit organization dedicated to make style accessible to people of all abilities. So I would definitely follow them. And I would also follow Art Solution, 
who are also a nonprofit that are second responders to places in crisis. And I love the term second responders because as you know, first responders bring food and water and all the basic needs of a space in crisis, like maybe a refugee camp. But second responders bring arts and arts education. And that's what they do for children at refugee camps. So I would follow all these amazing organizations. Let me quickly plug, and you can probably help me out here because obviously you were uh, much more connected to this than I was. But Open Style Lab was actually featured in a Netflix series, a Netflix show that I actually happened to catch a couple of weeks back. And I really enjoyed it. It was very inspiring to me. I thought it was a really well done program. Can you, uh, can you just talk about that really briefly here before we wrap up? Sure. Um, first, the documentary that Open Style Lab was featured in is on Hulu. It's called Design for All, and it was sponsored by Target and to really emphasize inclusive design, uh, which you know OpenStyle Lab does that for people with disabilities. And I would definitely encourage everyone to watch it because it gives a very unfiltered, uncensored view of inclusion and how it's important in design and this can be you know racial inclusion it can be you know ability related inclusion and you you see fields from fashion to architecture and i think it's something that everybody should watch because this is something that we should be practicing on our day to day we have to be inclusive. We have to expose ourselves to diverse groups when we're working, not for anybody's sake, really, only to create a better outcome in our projects. Because, you know, we have worked with people with disabilities. They're the original hackers. They hack their lives to be able to get by. And when you're working with them, you're already, you know, half the way ahead when you're even starting the conversation. So we should be doing this to be able to innovate and come up with ideas that are sustainable and resilient and responsive like in the times of covid so this is something that everybody should be practicing and design for all is a great way to sort of expose ourselves to what inclusion means so that is design for all on hulu pardon my previous reference but it's hulu uh, design for all documentary we're going to link that in the show notes as well because i thought it was really well done pinar there's only one more thing to do here and that is to roll out the red carpet for you tell the world what you're up to and where they can find you online oh my god so we are up to a really cool couple urban design and placemaking projects both in New York City and Istanbul at the moment. And by the time this podcast is out, I'm hoping some of the work will also be out there. So definitely follow us on our website, sour.studio, and also on our Instagram, which is what is sour, and our Medium blog, which is also what is sour. And please do listen to our podcast and follow our What's Wrong With Events, which as Chris already said, you can find it in any major podcast outlets and also on What's Wrong With XYZ, which I think at this point we will be having What's Wrong With Art panel discussion very, very soon. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Pinar, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. 
If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.